0: My first concussion I uh, got when I was only 13. At one point while I was home, uh, I was actually just waiting at the door to say goodbye to my brother when he was leaving for school, and I fainted suddenly. And we're d- not sure if I hit my head again on the way down or or not. So I wound up having to take about six months where I couldn't I couldn't cycle. Uh, and during the time that I was recovering from that surgery, my classmate she died of a concussion. Uh, of multiple concussions. That was part of the reason that I ultimately left sports when I did five years ago. I had become so averse to the risk and so aware of how many people were, their lives were changed by concussions and I I didn't want that to happen to me.
1: Listening to Minding the Brain with Dr. Kim Hellemans and Dr. Jim Davies. Episode 5 Concussions. The brain is a fragile organ with a consistency a little like jello. We have a skull with an average thickness of about 6.5 millimeters to protect it, but if it gets hit hard enough, it can cause something called a concussion or in medical jargon, a mild traumatic brain injury. We have seen an increase in awareness around the risks and long-term consequences of multiple concussions, primarily related to sports over the past decade. Unfortunately, there is still a lot we don't know about how these head injuries impact the brain, and how in some cases, they lead to significant memory and or mental health problems. On today's show, we're going to discuss these issues with two experts on the topic of concussions. But first, we're going to hear from someone who has first-hand experience with just how life-changing the effects of a concussion can be.
0: My name is Nina Nesdoli, I'm a fourth year neuroscience student at Carleton University. My first concussion I got when I was only 13, that was 11 years ago. I was out on the playground at recess and some students were playing a game where they were picking each other up and swinging each other around, <laughs> and during this game someone's feet collided with my head and I got knocked over and I went straight to Chio after that. And At that point, the doctor said that even though I I said I was feeling fine, it wasn't bothering me, the doctor said that any bump on the head needed to be treated like a concussion, so I wound up taking three weeks off of school.
1: To learn more about the science of concussions, we spoke with Dr. Matt Hollihan, a professor of
2: neuroscience at Carleton University.
3: So hi, Matt. Can you tell us what, what made you interested in studying concussions?
2: I guess a number of things. I do have three children, and at the time, my oldest son was six, and he was just starting to play hockey. I became the team trainer, so I'm the first aid guy. So I had to learn you know, about signs of concussion, um, symptoms of concussions, so to be able to say if a child who was playing on the ice had an injury, had a you know a concussion, what would be the proper protocol? Um, so I kind of got into it from that side. And then I also, my wife is a neuropsychologist at the Children's Hospital here in Ottawa, and she works with kids who've had concussions, who have not regained you know their full functioning, so have attention problems, um, are not doing well in school because of a concussion. And then as, the, you know, the more I read up on this, the more I sort of realized that there's not that much known about what's actually going on after a concussion, what's happening during that recovery period? How, why is there prolonged symptoms in some people? why is there not? How does you know all this damage start to build up and produce this pathological response? Um, and I was I studied development, brain development, so it was kind of you know kind of all of a sudden dovetailed to think, well what happens to a concussion or what happens after a concussion in a developing organism like a human? what are the long-term outcomes? Are there, you know, does it impede these critical periods of development?
3: And so can you tell us a little bit about what you study exactly?
2: I mean, right now I, I was mostly interested in Uh, kind of looking at baseline testing in kids um, who are entering sports and then any follow-up tests that they might do for, you know, neuropsych assessment. So how well is their uh, brain functioning in terms of attention, cognitive function, um, things like that. But it kind of, that was a bit tricky to get my hands on a lot of those data. So we started, I have a student, PhD student who's working with um, the athletes, the university athletes, and she's been looking at, so she'll do baseline testing in these athletes in the preseason, and then try to follow them to say, well, if they have a concussion during the during the season, what is the immediate impact on their cognitive function? So again, like attention, and then what is their long term? Uh, what are their long term outcomes? So we follow them up, uh, you know, at one week, at one month, and then even at three months to see if they've fully regained their function. So we're starting to, you know, analyze a lot of those data now. Um, you know, I do some modeling of impact through the brain. So thinking about the, like I said, the, the bucket in the water of what are those forces that ripple through the brain. Um, this is some work done with an engineer here on campus. And we can kind of make false brains and then you can measure the uh, impact that goes through those brains with some high speed photography and things like that. So it's really, you know, I mean, I think a lot of my interest has been trying to determine determine a more valid sort of biological uh, marker or outcome of a concussion to say what really predicts long-term outcomes from an acute injury.
3: What exactly happens in the brain during a mild traumatic brain injury or concussion?
2: Yeah, so I guess it really depends on how strong the impact is. But I mean, I think for a typical sport-related concussion. What's mostly going to happen is it's going to be a chemical response. So there could be excitatory neurotransmitters that are released. there could be changes in ion concentration um, either inside a cell or outside a cell in the brain. Um, you could actually have a bit of microvasculature damage, so blood vessels in the brain that could potentially break. Um, and then I guess the the other big concern is the sort of energy crisis so. If there is some damage that you know we're not aware of in the brain that we can't haven't been able to see, um, energy levels might go up in the brain to try to recover from that damage. So that seems to be one of the bigger concerns now. Is this um, energy crisis? It's called.
0: I remember I had a headache and I was really dizzy. I would have difficulty making it from my bedroom to the kitchen without without getting dizzy and losing my balance. At one point while I was home, uh, I was actually just waiting at the door to say goodbye to my brother when he was leaving for school, and I fainted suddenly. And we're not sure if I hit my head again on the way down or or not, uh, but I did lose consciousness, and I think that was partly because of the dizziness I was experiencing. It was only about three weeks before everything was fully resolved. It was it was pretty quick. Uh, I was just told to stay home stay in bed, rest, not watch TV. It uh, happened in the spring, which was track and field time for (laughs) elementary school. I was really upset because uh, I had done the, there there was kind of two or three rounds of track and field and I had done the first one and qualified for the next one. So I was going to have to miss regionals because I was off sports completely. So that that was the most frustrating thing, but it was no exercise, no TV, no school for those weeks that I was off.
4: Okay, um, why don't you tell everybody your name and your uh, affiliation? My name is Andrea Nedoux.
5: I am a research associate at the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario.
4: Great. So uh, I understand that your research involves um, concussion recovery. So tell me, how long does it usually take for someone to recover from a concussion?
5: First of all, pediatric concussion is not exactly the same as adult concussion, and it will vary in length of recovery. My studies specialize more in pediatric concussion. But um, if we talk about adult concussion, it can take about seven to 10 days. Um, so two weeks um, to, to recover from a concussion compared to pediatric um, concussion can take up to four weeks. And this is more because of their, they're still developing their brain. And so um, the concussion is not adapting the same way in their brain compared to, to adults. So the mechanisms can be a bit different in pediatrics versus adults.
4: Your research focuses on the recovery period following the concussion. And the resumption of physical activity. Now, traditionally, hasn't it been viewed uh, that you're supposed to avoid any physical activity? And is this correct? And is there any new evidence about this?
5: So, yeah, so we when we published, uh, so the paper that you're referring to, when we published it, we published it in 2016 uh, under the old uh, guidelines, which were the Zurich guidelines. So um, if I just explain a bit the background history on this. Um, so uh, before May 2017, we were still running on the old guidelines for concussion. And basically these old guidelines were saying that once you have a concussion, to return to be able to return to play into a sport or return to school, return into just your your, your activities, you needed to be asymptomatic. So you need to have no symptoms. And so what would happen to at least the pediatric population is, um, and, and in adults as well, it was the same, well, they would go at home and, you know, stay at home, do nothing, can't watch TV, can't do any really, any cognitive task. Um, uh, you can't go walking, let's say you're a dog, because you're, you're prevented from doing any physical activity and any cognitive activities. And, um, and what we start to see in, within the literature and the research is as these participants, or these patients were starting to have secondary symptoms, which are anxiety and depression as well, because you're you're enclosed. You know you can't go see, especially for pediatric population. They're not they don't go see their friends because if they go see their friends, they're going to start running, playing at the park, and and so you're you're barred from that. You're not allowed, so you're kind of in a prison. Um, so those were um, the old guidelines. Uh, since May two thousand seventeen, the guidelines have actually um, have been updated, and now the guidelines state. That um, within a period of 24 to 48 hours, you can return to your daily routine. Now, daily routine is not physical activity. It's just, uh, for instance, if we're looking at a, a pediatric population again, if within your daily routine is to go to school, well, you go to school, but you can't do physical activity right away. And you need to take it slowly within your school activities, but you can start slowly to return to school. Um, if you have chores at home, you can. Can do your chores now if you have no symptoms while doing these uh, daily routine tasks then the next day this is where you can start reintroducing slowly physical activity into your life and so this normally is done with the help of your physician or your primary care provider there's charts that exist to indicate you know what steps you should take um, to reintroducing slowly physical activity it can be you know walking 10 minutes the first day if you still don't have symptoms then the following day you can um, you can walk maybe for 20, 25 minutes, or you can at least toss a bit the ball. And so you're trying to to do these these activities that will not um, or my, my, or that will not put the child at risk for a second concussion right away. So they need it needs to be lighter exercise. Um, so this is where we're at within our guidelines. Uh, my first concussion,
0: like I mentioned, it resolved pretty quickly and it there was no long-term impact of it. So at that point, I was in track and field and then I transitioned into triathlon and then eventually into road cycling watching other people around me experience really severe concussions started to. I started road cycling when I was 15 so that's about nine years ago and the more I got to know people in the cycling community the more I got to know people who had concussions or would experience concussions while I knew them and a lot of people went back to sport right away without taking any time off which meant that I knew quite a few athletes who had some really severe implications. Uh, I knew a girl who had wanted to go to med school and didn't end up doing that because of concussions. I knew someone else who was becoming a firefighter and didn't do that because of concussions. Uh, I knew another girl who had to be homeschooled for a while again because of her concussions. So I, I was watching this happen, but you kind of just go through it thinking, well, when it's me, if I get a concussion, I'm going to be better about it. I'm going to take care of myself. I'm going to take the time off. I'm not going to be like so and so who's not resting and who's pushing through it. Um, when I was in my the last year that I wound up competing, um, I had my I had my tonsils removed, and I was 19, 18 or 19 at the time. And it takes it takes a few months to recover in an adult. So I wound up having to take about six months where I couldn't I couldn't cycle. Uh, And during the time that I was recovering from that surgery, my classmate uh, that you've probably heard mention of before, Rowan Stringer, she died of a concussion, uh, of multiple concussions. I didn't know Rowan that well, but it was still, it it hit us all really hard to know someone who had who had died in high school. Um, And so when I was ready to start training again and going back A few months after that, I kind of looked around it. You know, I'd I'd been off for eight months to a year at that point, somewhere in that range. And I looked around at my friends who were still having symptoms, my friends who weren't cycling anymore, and my classmate who who had passed away. And that was part of the reason that I ultimately left sports when I did five years ago. I thought... I've got my brain cells. I'm just going (laughs) to leave with them and uh, I can keep going recreationally. But I after taking a step back from it for a few months and then trying to come back, I just I had become so averse to the risk and so aware of how many people were
3: their lives were changed by concussions. And I, I didn't want that to happen to me. For those of you listening who are not in the Ottawa area and who may not be aware of Rowan Stringer, uh, uh, Rowan was a, a high school student who was a rugby player and she sustained a concussion during play and uh, she did not let her coach or anybody know that she had, she was still symptomatic. She was in, the, uh, I believe, the finals of, uh, of her school rugby match and she went on the pitch and she sustained uh, a second concussion while she was still symptomatic with her first concussion and she had what's known as a second impact syndrome. So Matt, what exactly is second impact syndrome?
2: Yeah, so this is a, I suppose I would call it a rare event, but just because it's a rare event doesn't mean it's not a very serious event. Um, But second impact syndrome is usually when an individual's had a concussion, okay, let's say if they're playing a sport and they've had a concussion, they're put on the sideline, they're out for hopefully, you know, a recovery period of let's say seven days, and then they go back in and they experience another concussion, and then oftentimes pretty dramatic outcomes and very detrimental outcomes can ensue um, to the, you know, the point of actually death. So what is thought to be happening is that the brain is not recovered from that first concussion. So while the brain is in this recovery mode, so that's where this energy maybe crisis comes into play, as the brain is trying to recover itself and expending a lot of energy to repair, you know, tissue, um, another concussion happens on top of that. And then the, the the two events the, the you know re- during the recovery period from the first concussion and then the second concussion those two events somehow seem to really just cause this catastrophic event in the brain um, One thing that I've seen is that uh, second impact syndrome really only appears to be in adolescent you know, teenagers who are in sports. And so there might be another process happening to the adolescent brain that then also kind of sets it up, gives it a higher, let's say, baseline for when damage happens that the brain just can't really recover adequately from those concussive events.
3: And nobody knows why there's a greater risk at adolescence?
2: I don't think so. I haven't seen anything about this. You know, the only thing I can imagine is that the brain, so, you know, thinking about the development of the brain, there's developmental milestones, um, you know, there's the younger developmental milestones, and then there's adolescent changes to the brain. Um, There's a lot of restructuring that happens in the brain. There's a lot of biochemical pathways that are activated. Uh, There's hormones, you know, there's just this kind of whirlwind of activity in the brain. And so it seems that maybe that activity, as you get it, as you receive a concussion or as you experience a concussion, the concussive event sort of adds up onto that higher baseline of activity. And, you know, what that activity is, is not quite clear um, and why it doesn't affect everybody, you know, equally.
0: My second concussion just felt like the most unfair version of karma I have ever encountered because, Uh, I had been away from sports for a few, well, from competing for a few years, but I'd gone back as a coach, so I was participating, giving back to the community. Uh, I was going to the gym regularly, doing yoga regularly, and that's how I got my second concussion, was during a yoga class. Um, It was January 16th of 2017. I, uh, I was in a yoga class, a hot yoga class, and we're not really sure why this happened, never got to the bottom of it, but I fainted and I hit my head on the floor, and I was unconscious for just under a minute. And when I got up, uh, it's it's funny, because I remember I remember lying there and seeing all these different colors, and I first I thought I was asleep, and then I, I started to realize I was in a yoga class, and I realized there was some kind of disturbance, and I was like, who is causing all of this drama? Only to open my eyes and realize that I was the one lying on the floor causing all the disruption and they called the ambulance uh they took me to the hospital and i kept saying i feel really dizzy and i I don't feel right and by this point i had you know cumulative 13 years of sports experience and so when they were having me do tests like stand on one leg I was saying, well, I can stand on one leg any day, that doesn't mean I'm not dizzy. And But they did these tests, follow my finger, stand on one leg and said, no, you're fine. We don't know why you fainted. Maybe you have an ear infection. And so they gave me some antibiotics, uh, gave me a doctor's note for two days and sent me on my way. So they convinced me, which looking back seems ridiculous, but I was so out of it that I was like, all right, that's fine. Went back to work, went back to school. Uh, and I kept going to work and school and I tried to go to the gym once and I almost fell off the treadmill so I decided I wouldn't go to the gym but kept doing other things for about a month Uh, I was being asked at work if I was okay my customers were commenting that I didn't seem quite there people thought something was wrong with my legs so I, I kept going back to class kept going back to work and I was always dizzy and I at the time I was saying that I didn't have headaches but when I look back at text messages and emails that I had sent people, I was talking about headaches in messages. So there was some kind of disconnect going on there. And it, it all kind of came to its worst when I, uh, I wrote a stats midterm and I went through it the first time and you, know, you kind of go through and answer all the questions you know how to answer and then you go through again and you work your brain a little harder and try to answer the other ones. And it was like suddenly the world started to go black and I started crying and falling apart right there in the exam and saying that I couldn't finish, saying that I was dizzy. And my friend, who is also a student at Carleton, uh, she took me out of the room and took me to the hospital again. And (laughs) I got to the hospital and I I went through the whole process. And I I kept saying, "I, I hit my head a month ago. I'm pretty sure I have a concussion. And I can't remember what it was, but they tried to prescribe me something. And I recognized it from one of my classes. And I said, that's that's an antidepressant. That's not for headaches. And they're like, well, we think you might actually be having a nervous breakdown. And I, I threw a fit and I sat down on the, the the bed and I crossed my arms and I said, I'm not leaving until you get me someone who's going to listen to me. I have a concussion. And so at that point, they referred me to a concussion specialist. And the first thing he said to me was, why would you let it get this bad? I really didn't want to have a concussion. So there was probably a little bit of denial there. And I was I was so out of it. I was so unaware of my surroundings and of what was going on with myself, and I was so focused on going to work and writing my exams and doing all of my regular things, and when they put forward the idea that maybe it was an ear infection, I just kind of went with it, and I guess you're kind of hoping that it was an ear infection that was making me dizzy, so I let, that, I let that steer me for a while. I would go in, and my doctor had this questionnaire that he'd have me fill out, and there were uh, you give it a rating for one to six on the dipter- different symptoms that you were experiencing. And I was often putting a five or a six for sadness and anxiety. And I was crying all the time. I was having really dark thoughts. Uh, I never got to the point where I wanted to act on anything like suicide or anything like that. But I, it was kind of there in my mind, like this little voice saying, you know, like this pain, you could get out of it. You, you could get aw- away from it if you did this, and I I didn't want that, so I fought through it and I told my doctor and I told close friends what I was going through to, to help me get through it. Uh, but then in my personal life, I was, was picking fights with my boyfriend, I was getting into arguments. Uh, I remember one time I was on the phone trying to get my employment insurance set up because I was off work. And I think we've all probably all fantasized about throwing our phone at the wall in frustration
5: because of how annoying the government can be, and I did.
4: Can you explain for us what is a persistent post-concussion symptom?
5: Persistent post-concussion symptoms is a disabling condition, and it's characterized by persistency of symptoms lasting beyond one month and persisting for months or years, and this is in the pediatric population. In the adult population, persistent symptoms um, is uh, normally starts at two weeks post-injury, and so when an adult has symptoms post-two weeks, uh, this is where we start characterizing their concussion as persistent persistent post-concussive symptoms. So just to summarize, persistent post-concussive symptoms are symptoms that will last beyond one month and can last for months or years.
4: Okay, so we're going we're gonna to call this PPCS.
5: PPCS, exactly.
4: Um, now, there was a recent multi-site Canadian study exploring which variables would predict PPCS among children. Uh, can you explain to us uh, what were the main findings of this study?
5: The main findings is that they found that there is nine predictors um, collected in the acute stage. Um, of the concussion, that could predict persistent post-concussive symptoms at four weeks. And so here we just need to understand it's not the individual predictors itself. We need to sum up all the, the scores of these predictors um, to create this clinical score. And depending on your score um, on these nine variables, we can calculate your risk of having persistent post-concussive symptoms at um at four weeks, with a good, fairly good accuracy. Um, so, um, so these nine So what are these nine predictors? The nine predictors are age. So you are greater risk between the age of 13 to 18. Um, Female. Female sex is a really uh, big predictor as well. Um, If you had prior concussion and symptoms lasting more than a week, um, if you are subject to migraine or if you have migraine history, answering questions slowly upon presentation or after a concussion, having um, errors, multiple errors on this balance test that we did with them, um, having headaches, sensitivity to noise and fatigue after the concussion or upon presentation as well, uh, were markers or predictors um, of um, perhaps having persistent post-concussive symptoms at four weeks.
4: Why is it important to be able to predict it? Does it affect the treatment before?
5: Um, well, exactly. It can actually, it can help um, the physician primary care provider to, to finding what is the best treatment for that um, patient, um, to refer the patient right away to a specialized clinic to try to deal with, um, with the concussion and with the symptoms to try to prevent persistent post-concussive symptoms. Now, persistent post-concussive symptoms and something that uh, I didn't mention at the beginning is it's really a really disabl- disabling condition. and. Um, um, and it's basically characterized by multiple symptoms that you would find in the acute stage of concussion. And a, it will debilitate you a lot and it will impact your quality of life. It will also impact the quality of life of your parents if, if you are a child with the concussions. Um, and so symptoms here can be various as well, right? So physical headache, dizziness, fatigue. Uh, they can be mental, so cognitive, so inattention, for instance, um, emotional uh, and behavioral. So sadness, irritability, if it's a child, well, they might act up more at home or at school. Uh, there can be as well as sleep problems with difficulty falling to sleep, waking up at night um, or, or sleeping too much, for instance. So these are all symptoms that really you don't want to have for four weeks or for months ahead of you, right? You want to try to prevent these as fast or as soon as you can uh, and so by by having, understanding these predictors in advance and understanding that we, we can pr- possibly Predict persistent post-concussive sy- symptoms at four weeks is really it's really good. We're really going to the right um, avenue um, to try to to um, uh, give a better quality of life to these patients.
4: One of the factors that you mentioned was uh, being female. Why do you suppose females are at greater risk for PPCS?
5: Um, so that is a really good question. So females are, according to the study, greater at risk of developing PPCS, and this is something that we actually found as well in the literature. So um, much of the literature are stating that adolescent females are at greater risk, um, and, and that is significantly, um, statistically significant and clinically significant as well. So females do take longer to recover, and there's actually multiple reasons for that. So for instance, um, uh, the one reason would be the increased rate of injury for females versus males. Um, the other one is that females actually have a longer cervical spine segment, and so they might not be able to, uh, or they might not be as efficient um, at transmitting the impact forces from their head into their torso via their neck muscles. So basically what I'm saying here is that females have not as a strong neck as males to be able to absorb the shock of the concussion. Um, another theory, is hormones in the adolescent period, you start puberty, right? And you actually have different groups within that big adolescent group from 13 to 18. You have females that have not started puberty, females that have started puberty, and females that are post-puberty. And so there are studies that have indicated, depending on uh, what hormone is in your body, depending if you have um, started your menstruation or not, you might have um, different recovery length of time. So for instance, one study has shown that that estrogen within the female body will exacerbate the symptoms um, in female rats. Uh, And in males, if males have the same level of estrogen, it will actually be a protective effect on the male's brain uh, of the rat. And this, just to note, this was in uh, traumatic brain injury um, uh, studies and not necessarily concussion per se. But um, often the t- t- mild TBI and uh, concussion do have similar mechanisms or neural mechanisms.
0: Once I, once I was being seen by a concussion specialist and he was saying this is a concussion, uh, I was really good about doing what I was told in terms of treatment. Um, I did physio. I worked with a nutritionist even for nutrition that promoted some brain health. I did a little bit of light exercise because now they're starting to find that complete, complete rest after the acute phases is not always the best thing. Seven months of no exercise is is no better. Uh, So I I would go for light bike rides and and walks with my dog. Um, Probably did a bit more screen time than I should have. Uh, I still cut back drastically for what a student normally does, but I was was still on my phone a fair bit, partly because I was lonely and I had nothing to do. Um and then going when I went back to school in the fall um, I only took three courses, and I had registered for five for the winter term. And partway through the fall term, I thought, no, I'm, I'm just gonna do three again. And I went back to work in September. I started at two hours a week, then four, six, eight, and didn't get all the way back up to twenty hours, which is what I work now until until February. Just trying to be really honest about what I can and can't do, and not to get too upset about that. It's it's not fun watching all of my friends graduate and being left behind this year, but. It's what I had to do, and I think long-term, I'll be better off for it.
3: Well, on, on that note, I know as one of your your final capstone project for uh, one of your courses that you did create a website or an online resource, or it's a course, in fact, that, that individuals can take regarding concussions and education around concussions. Can you tell us a little bit about and our listeners a bit about that website
0: One of the difficult things about having a concussion with symptoms that kept me off work for seven months and kept me off classes is that past a couple of weeks, the understanding and compassion that you get from other people really starts to dwindle. Uh, I was accused a few times of lying, of stretching it out. And at one point, I had a really negative experience, unfortunately, here at the university, where... I had deferred all of my final exams to give me more time to study. So this was in April, a few months after I first had gotten the concussion. So it was, it was really at its worst. And we thought that the extra month to study was gonna help. It didn't really, so when I got to the last set of finals, there were two of them that I felt like I could do because they were, one of them was neuroscience, so it was a lot more familiar, and one of them was, I think, stats, so it was more problem-based, but there was another one that just required a lot of memorization, and I, I couldn't do it, I couldn't memorize everything I needed to. And I couldn't I couldn't write three exams. So I had my doctor fill out the paperwork uh, to petition for something called a DNC, which is a did not complete, to say just she did not complete this course. And the the office that makes the decisions refused and they failed me. And I got in touch with them again and I sent in more paperwork because they said, oh, it's not specific enough. Like, we'll just set up another rewrite for you. And my doctor and my mom were like, no, no, like she needs to stop writing Sam. She needs to rest. So they set up another rewrite. We said, no, we sent in more paperwork. They said, no, you still fail and it took me uh, escalating up to i actually called the called the vp's office cuz i didn't th- i didn't know how high or where to go and they were able to get it resolved for me but being in that state where i was in so much pain already and having so much trouble and having to deal with offices and people and paperwork it was it wasn't good, and I shared that story in my honors project class, and so my professor encouraged me to look at the policies that high schools and post-secondary like colleges and universities have around concussion recovery and long-term concussions, so post-concussion syndrome, which would be what I had, um, and it turns out there's not much. <laughs> so my the course that I created, it goes through What is a concussion, understanding the symptoms and seeing it in other people, specifically in uh, high school and post-secondary students. And then it gets into the the biological components of what's going on underneath. So what's happening to the neurons, what's happening to blood flow through the brain. And from there, it goes into connect those biological components to the depression and anxiety symptoms, uh, the cognitive activity and how cognitive activity uh, can impact concussions and how concussions impact cognitive abilities, as well as talking about uh, the the athletic component, the risks of doing something like a, a physical uh contact sport, uh, such as rugby, uh, versus doing low-grade cardio, which can actually be beneficial. So it's it's designed to be a resource mostly for parents and teachers, or for other students who might be in high school and, and college to understand not only what's going on underneath concussions, and what the outcomes are, but to really connect the biological basis uh, to those outcomes. Because that's what, when I was starting to do research on it, that's what I found was lacking, was there's a lot of there's a lot of research papers on what's going on in the brain. And there's a lot of people saying, well, you need this rest, and you need to do this kind of exercise and whatnot. But there wasn't a whole lot that brought the two together, that connected them. And then I was trying to look, too, at what kind of policies existed for uh, for return to learn. Uh, unfortunately, there's not a whole lot available. So I, I do hope that that's an area that is going to be expanded on in the coming years, because it's certainly something that we,
3: we need. Are there regions of the brain that are more sensitive to the impact of concussions?
2: Yeah. Um, so for sure in the You know, in the chronic traumatic encephalopathy world and the pathology, you see a lot of uh, pathology in the medial temporal lobe, uh, where they, like say, the memory structures are found in the hippocampus and some of these important parts of the brain for long-term memory storage. But, you know, in some of the acute episodes, you do see, you know, it's kind of related to the symptoms, right? So if if a person is having a hard time paying attention, that could mean that the frontal part of the brain, the frontal lobe has been damaged, or if they have light sensitivity, could be the back of the brain. So the occipital lobe, the part that, you know, mediates visual processing. And then there's also, you know, one of the other Big symptoms is the uh, the motor changes, motor coordination, and motor incoordination, and balance problems. So that could be part of the cerebellum, you know, part of the brain that's involved in motor functioning. So it seems that it's it's like a lot of other um, insults to the brain. Let's say a stroke, where you know there there seems to be a few particular parts of the brain that are ultimately sensitive to damage. So the frontal lobe, the cerebellum, the um, the hippocampus, medial temporal lobe, and then but it's kind of interesting in the long term when you have the pathological response, it seems to be somewhat um, not restricted, but there's a lot of lot more noticeable pathology in the medial temporal lobe.
3: Now, you said you had kids and uh, your oldest son was playing hockey. Are they still in sports, knowing what you know now, now that you've uh, been studying concussions for a number of years?
2: I mean, my 12-year-old son has been playing hockey for six years now. I have a <clears throat> eight-year-old who's been playing hockey for three years. Uh, my daughter does not play hockey, so at least we have a little bit of a break in there. It's a concern for sure. I think there's a lot of benefits from playing team sports, uh, from playing sports in general, you know, There's obviously the physical activity. There's the mental aspects, right? Challenging yourself, you know, saying that, well, I'm not the best this person's better but how can I work harder to become you know better and I think there's so there's a lot of benefits for sure to sports um, but you're right there's the there's the problem there's injuries that happen um, and there's you know it's you could say well I I could be walking on the street and fall and hit my head but you know I think you have to look at what is the propensity for injury in these sports so hockey has a higher propensity for somebody to receive a concussion um, you know football or rugby there's a lot of um, head contact so that could lead to more a higher incidence of concussion so I I mean I get I think it you don't want to wrap your kids in a bubble um, or in bubble wrap Um, you want them to participate and but also to be aware to say so so now I mean it's been interesting because my oldest son who's 12 is playing rugby this summer so he's just um, just started and what they're they're teaching in rugby is a lot of concussion awareness to say you know how what are The signs that you might experience with a concussion. So there's a lot of you know at practices there's just sitting down and talking about being aware of these signs that might you know tell you that you have a brain injury and then what to do you know to say okay coach I need to stay out I don't want to go back on. Um, So I think that that's really important is to be start educating not just the players but also the coaches. So the coaches have been you know in hockey and rugby a lot of the coaches have been around rinks and fields for a long time. And, you know, a dinger has always been kind of a laughing matter. (laughs) And now I think the coaches have to really take this a bit more seriously. And so, you know, there's also encouragement from parents to say, you know, ask the coach, what's their philosophy? What do they think about concussions? You know, what do they what do they expect? And what, you know, so it's I think a lot of that is important. It's just the education aspect and also to try to, uh, you know, prevent these from happening
4: as best as possible. Are there any misconceptions or messages you'd like our listeners to take away about concussions?
5: I think, number one, um, it's important to understand a concussion is just, it's not just hitting your head onto something or falling to the ground and hitting your head or a sport-related concussion. A concussion, you can get it actually from having a blow or a hit to your body. And really? Yes. And, and so that's a really big miscon- misconception in concussion that we think that you need to have the blow to your head. This is not the case. You could have a blow to your stomach. You could have a severe blow to your legs and just the repercussion or the mechanism of your body not being able to absorb the shock can re- can, can end up going into your brain and, and and mimicking the concussion itself, right? So if you're in, in a car accident, you don't even hit your head, but you just have the movement uh, or the the violent movement of your body going backwards and forwards. That is enough to make your brain shift in your cranium oh, okay. and, right. and, and and make you have a concussion as well. So that, that is one important uh, aspect. And it's so if a, your head really sense,
4: move, If your head moves, if even if it doesn't meds- hit anything,
5: exactly. So your right. your brain is capable of shifting within your skull even though you did not get a blow to your head um, uh, I think uh, it is important that if you do have symptoms you need to discuss this with your primary care provider if it's uh, within um, a space of two weeks after your injury you still have symptoms it's important to, to go talk to your primary care provider uh, for adults and for kids normally it's after four weeks um, to try to prevent these symptoms to, uh, or to try to prevent the length of recovery time for these kids because it's not, um, it's not fun for them to have um, that much symptoms, right, throughout the months and years. I think to wrap up, I just really want to emphasize that a child should not return to physical activity or return to play within their sports right away after a concussion um, because this is where it could get, the, the child could be at risk, where the adult could be at risk of getting a second impact concussion. So if you're on the soccer field, you get right away a concussion. You should say something, right? You should be pulled out of the game and not return to sport. Right away, because it could be really dangerous for that participant. After the concussion, you need to discuss this with your primary care provider, your physician, or at the emergency. And it's after um, discussing the concussion with them that you can start making plans to when you will return to your sport. All right. So when we say return to physical activity, we do not need, we do not need, we do not mean to return right away to your sport of putting your slapping your skates on and returning on the ice rink. There's a lot of steps that needs to be accomplished before returning to play. So returning to play is not the same thing as to returning to physical activity. And I think that is very, very important. Um, and I do not want to misguide anybody on thinking that I'm saying, yes, you can return to play, which is not the case. Any symptoms that the child might have uh, that I believe Matt discussed previously, um, right. you need, so so from physical symptoms to, to headache, uh, feeling exactly fuzzy, feeling uh, not well, nauseous, uh, fatigued, emotional, et cetera, all these symptoms are important to discuss um, to the emergency department or to your primary care provider after you've got uh, a little to the head or you've got hit.
0: I think the first piece of advice I would give is to know that it's worse than anything you can imagine. So if you know someone who's going through this, uh, I was already three years into a neuroscience degree when I got my concussion. I thought I knew what I was in for. I had no idea. And it was very hard to communicate to the people around me what I was going through except for people who had also been there so if it's a if you're a family or friend and you have someone you care about who has a concussion just I would say know that what they're going through is probably a lot worse than what you can begin to fathom Uh, and to to give them the space and understanding to have their meltdowns and (laughs) have their bad days and know that they could go on for a while and Doesn't mean they don't care about you and that they're not coming back, but it'll be really, it can be really difficult. And for anyone who has a concussion now, or even just the, you know, we all live with the 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 risk of having one. I got mine during yoga. I think it's important to cultivate healthy habits and good relationships before bad things happen. Because one of the things I found the most important was I was already someone who listened to a lot of podcasts and audiobooks and uh, a lot of took in a lot of positive things. I already had really good friends, a really good network of people who were there to support me. And so when things weren't going well, I had the kind of friends who recognized that it was the concussion and not me that they were dealing with. And when I was having really scary thoughts that I needed to chase out, it was turning to my audiobooks and my community that was able to to help me through that because those things were already in place. So at, at the, <laughs> the risk of sounding really bleak it could happen to anybody and I think that it's it's important to just have things in place like self-care and community before things like that happen and not to wait until it's until you're already there today it's been it's been months since I've had any symptoms or any of the affect of it it was probably the last headache I had was uh, five months ago now
1: Minding the Brain is edited by me, Mike Kontos, and brought to you by Carleton University's Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences, funded in part by a Carleton SSHRC Knowledge Mobilization Grant, and made possible by Mitochondria, for giving our neurons the energy to make sense of themselves. If you want to support Minding the Brain, please consider leaving us a review in your podcast app of choice as it will help make our podcast more visible to potential listeners. If you'd like to follow us on Instagram, you can find us at Minding the Brain. Minding the Brain is currently looking for sponsors. If your company is interested, please email us at podcast at gmail.com. Music is plucked by Michael Terry. More episodes and show notes available at mindingthebrainpodcast.com.